Welcome to Moving the Needle, casual conversations about ways, big and small, to impact student learning. Brought to you by the Faculty Center for Teaching and Learning at the University of Maryland, Baltimore. I'm Erin Hager. Let's move the needle. Our guest this week is Dr. Sandra Quesada, Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at the University of Maryland Medical Center in Baltimore. She is the Associate Dean for Admissions for the University of Maryland School of Medicine, Assistant Dean for Faculty Diversity and Inclusion, and Course Director for the Medical Spanish Elective, a course she helped launch when she herself was a medical student here at UMB. I'm so excited about this episode. Since my own college teaching experience is in Spanish, it's really fun for me to get to geek out about language learning and what it can reveal about teaching more broadly. We'll ask Dr. Quesada how her medical Spanish course integrates and reinforces the rest of the medical school curriculum, how teaching language overlaps with culture and cultural humility, and how she creates a relaxed learning environment where mistakes aren't just okay, but expected. Let's get to the interview. Dr. Quesada, welcome to Moving the Needle. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's so great to have you here today. Um, so I guess I'd just like to begin by having you tell us a little bit about the medical Spanish program at UMB. How did it How did it come to be? So it's actually been around for a long time, but it's definitely evolved over time. It, I'm, I feel really proud to be able to say that it started while I was a medical student there. I was a second year student, and it really was, I think, a group of students and a few faculty who advocated for having some form of a medical Spanish initiative or program at the medical school, really just sort of recognizing the, you know, growing Latinx community in the country, even then, you know, 20 years ago, we didn't, I don't think we even realized, you know, how things would continue to, to grow, you know, in the decades to come, not only across the country, but in Baltimore. So, so even at that point, just recognizing that our students that are, you know, graduating practicing medicine all over the country could potentially find it very useful to have a medical Spanish program available to them. So it started off um, more informal and still was mostly faculty led, uh, which was great. Um, and it was held over a, like a lunch hour and was sort of like a, you know, kind of like a brown bag lunch kind of um, practice your practice your Spanish. Um, they originally had two different levels, a more beginner level and then like the intermediate advanced level. Um, and so the beginner level would focus more on, I think, very introductory kind of uh, conversation and um, some grammatical kind of uh, instruction. And then the intermediate and advanced really was, I think, more of the medical Spanish course because it was uh, designed to provide some medical terminology to students who, even though they might be quite proficient in Spanish, might not necessarily have um, all that, you know, terminology. So, um, you know, one of the examples I like to give is, you know, I was, I am fluent in Spanish, um, and I started off myself actually before medical school. I was an interpreter um, at a hospital, and I remember when I was doing my training. Uh, thinking like, oh, this is going to be, this this should be pretty straightforward. This should be pretty easy. And then I was like, wow, there are a lot of words I didn't know. Like, you know, it's, you don't know what you don't know. And as you were learning it, you're like, right. Um, I've never had to say spleen before. It just doesn't come <laughs> right. up in common conversation. <laughs> right. So, um, so even students who are quite advanced and proficient in Spanish really do benefit from a course that provides them that kind of 
terminology. So over time, it's now evolved to become something that was more of a all comers get together over a lunch hour and practice some conversation. Let's learn some terminology to now a sort of course curriculum approved credit granting elective in the medical school program. And uh, it is more structured now so that it includes um, a, usually it's actually about a one and a uh, 90 minutes uh, time every week, a weekly session of sort of didactics, classroom or Zoom room, I guess. Uh, again, going by system and reviewing terminology, both anatomical terms as well as uh, symptoms and um, what if some some how would you communicate a diagnostic test or result for example and really giving the students an opportunity to practice putting all of that terminology into a conversation and and practice taking a, a medical history as well as walking their patient through the physical exam so so I, I sort of redesigned the course so that it would really parallel and follow the medical school curriculum that they're also taking, you know, in English. So as they're learning, say, in their um, in their uh, gastroenterology block, they're learning about the GI anatomy and function and disease processes. Then in our medical Spanish class, we're really reinforcing that and 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 discussing those terms again in Spanish on a higher level and just reviewing some of the anatomical terms in Spanish. And then also, how would you take that history? What are some of the common and important questions? you should be asking for that particular system. And then in addition to the classroom time, I thought it was really important that there would also be a service learning component and really just more of a, a community component where, where the students would have an opportunity to be in the clinical setting, working with uh, Spanish speaking patients and really putting those skills um, into practice, really applying what they've learned in the classroom. And every year, the students always confirm that this is super rewarding and um, just one of the most valuable parts of their of the course and of their experience overall. That's great. I love that it that it began as a student led initiative. In in some of our other episodes, we've had a a common thread about um, a, sort of a democratic approach to teaching or a horizontal approach to teaching, where really the 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 dynamics between the faculty and the students are uh, presented in a more equal way or thought about in more. Um, more equal terms and it just the fact that you could suggest this and lead it and be heard by your faculty and and now have it morph into something that is uh such a formal part of the curriculum uh, that must be really rewarding it really is and i think it's great for the for the students to see that and, and that's just one example honestly i think there are a lot of um now existing threads in the curriculum and certainly a lot of um student run or led groups that also include faculty mentors but certainly a lot of things that are ingrained in the curriculum now that our students i think provided the the impetus to to get those things moving so our students are always you know driving us to be better and i think that's great yeah that is great so what are some of the strategies uh and approaches that you use to teach 
uh, to teach medical Spanish. You've described a little bit what the curriculum entails, but how do you how do you go about it? How do you go about uh, working with different levels of language learners, that kind of vulnerability or anxiety that might come from not being able to say what you want to say? Um, and, and what strategies have you found that really help the help the language stick? Yeah, so actually, I, I guess one thing I didn't mention that as the course evolved um, to the four credit elective, that elective that is for credit became uh, really focused on that intermediate to advanced proficiency level. Um, but recognizing that there are a lot of students who may not be at that comfort level. Um, and sometimes even we just because there is a, such a huge interest that we couldn't always accommodate all the students that that wanted to to participate that we also have actually what i call the sister <laughs> student run course of medical spanish um, that my own students who've completed the full medical spanish elective teach and so it's you know students teaching each other um, in some cases they develop some of their own materials which i've seen and it's awesome and then i also share my materials with them too so I wanted to make sure that there was always still something for everyone um, to be able to, to have a chance to, to refresh or learn you know, their skills in Spanish. So I feel like in my course, even though it is intermediate advanced level, there is a fairly broad range still of proficiency within those two levels. And, and maybe what's even broader than the range itself is, is the confidence level and those who are on the maybe more intermediate side uh, are tend to, to have more of that you know, little bit of anxiety or shyness, self-consciousness about what their accent might be like or, or if they make a grammatical error. Um, and you know, definitely one of the things I think I, I definitely reiterate multiple times uh, throughout more so the beginning of the course, I think it's not, it becomes less needed fortunately as we move along the year. But in the beginning, you know, somebody who maybe isn't quite as advanced as some of the other students will have a tendency to like apologize frequently as they're trying to uh, express themselves. And, and yet, it, you know, as you notice, and you're listening, the apologies are not necessary. You know, they're, they're doing a great job. Um, and so it's just first just affirming them and, and letting them know, hey, that was, that was great. And, you know, that sounded perfect. Or, you know, I completely understood your message. And that is always the most important thing. And here is a, a, a maybe a, another way to say what you said that might be even more clear. So um, never really say that was wrong, actually, um, because at the end of the day, what's important to me is that I want the patients to be able to understand um, what is being said to them. Also, I want them to be understood when they when they speak. So I, I you know I really really always stress that as the most important thing. I also remind our students that for any proficiency level, regardless of how fluent or not you are, sometimes the word just doesn't come to you and that's okay. And that if that's the case, then just kind of take a detour and walk your way around the word and just say what you mean to say. Um, sometimes even when you know the word, like let's go back to spleen, like you might remember that the word for spleen is basso, but maybe the person you're talking to still is not super familiar with that term or they've heard the word but they're like but but what is that really what is your spleen really what does it do <laughs> um so 
you know, as we're, as we're um, talking about, you know, as you, you, maybe you, even if you forget the word for spleen, then just say, you know, so it's an organ that, you know, sits on the left side of your body and it helps do this and this. So basically just finding your way around sometimes um, that and not getting caught up or hung up specifically on that word, but just making sure that you're communicating the message that you need to communicate. And by all means, just reinforcing um, that, that we're here to make mistakes. That's the point of the class is, you know, this is the place to mess up, say something funny and, and we'll all learn from it together and then together learn what's a better way to say that so that you're prepared when you're interacting with your patients. Yeah, that's great. I, I don't know if I mentioned to you before, but my own teaching background is in Spanish. And even, you know, in a, a non-medical context, that that deer in the headlights look that students can give you when they're stuck on one word and you know yeah. their their whole sentence their whole message was coming through and then they freeze on that one word and and it's such an important skill to just be able to unfreeze and like you said there you know 10 ways to skin this cat right you can describe mm -hmm. this in so yep. many other ways um but what strikes me when you're describing this scenario is that now we have this added layer of medical terminology which may or may not be familiar to the patient in the first place so even mm -hmm. if the provider uses a hundred percent perfect uh perfectly grammatical perfect vocabulary to describe all of the procedures and diagnostics and and molecular structures and all these things there's still this layer of understanding that may or may not be coming through to the patient that has nothing to do with the language itself can you can you speak a little bit about how you how you manage that yeah i mean i think one of the 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 themes that I like to reinforce and remind people with respect to that is, is it, in some ways it gets back to what I was saying before about the importance of the message being what, what gets through is that that can happen um, in English or in Spanish, right? So it could certainly in English, you could be, you know, you're, you're speaking your primary language, it's the patient's primary language, and you're communicating a diagnosis or you're discussing what the treatment plan may be. And you're making assumptions about what the patient understands and what they can take in. Um, and it could be very much that you have the right words and that you, you, or you feel what you think are the right words, but they're not the right words, actually. If your patient doesn't understand, then it's yeah. of no use to your patient. Um, and it's of no use to you as a provider if you're not able to communicate that in a way that it will be understood, received, and applied by your patient. So I feel like that's also the same in Spanish. So I, I remind my patients, you know, this is oftentimes that there might be a medical term. This is the technical medical term for this in Spanish. But if you use this, it's, you know, a high likelihood or many of those patients are probably not going to understand that word. And so be ready to give an explanation or to follow up with a quick description of what that is or what that means. And then I just sort of add a paraphrase, like, by the way, you, you're probably gonna wanna do that in English too. So it's not about the language, it's not about the patient population, it's about the fact that medical terminology is a whole different language too, in and of itself. So um, so I think that that's, it, it is an important thing to reinforce that at the end of the day, you're you're a great communicator when your message is understood right and whatever words it takes to do that exactly yeah, yeah. um learning a language is about the vocabulary and the grammar and the terminology and the phrasing but it's also so much about culture 
So how do you how do you approach that with your students? You mentioned, for example, the service learning. You want to talk a little bit about that and any other strategies you use to help uh, to help your students appreciate the the culture that's behind the language they're speaking. Yeah. So no, the the service learning I think is a great opportunity because they are rotating in clinics that are currently serving Spanish-speaking patients that also oftentimes are, are either uninsured, underinsured, maybe undocumented. Um, and we really, we, we explore that and we, and we talk about the implications of the, of the barriers really that that patient community is facing in addition to the language barrier, which in and of itself is a significant one. Um, and it really is, I think, a wonderful experience for our students to be immersed in that setting and to be able to see how does one approach that? What are some of the resources that are available? What are some strategies that providers that are doing that wonderful work in the community are finding ways to provide excellent service to those patients So um, that are in that scenario? So I, I think that that is um, a really great way to give that kind of insight um, to our students. Uh, but another thing that we do uh, in the course uh, is uh, I wanted to have something called like current events. And I remember thinking like, like if you translate current events directly into Spanish, it just sounds weird. So um, it has a little rhyme. So I decided to call it eventos del momento. So, you know, events happening in this moment. Um, and so every week, one of our students, it's very informal. Just a student gives maybe a, maybe five to 10 minutes um, of a quick oral presentation update really on some event or issue that impacts the Latinx community in the U.S. or potentially just the, the Latino community abroad that preferably is health related, although it doesn't uh, directly necessarily have to be. And our students are very creative. And, and honestly, I always learn from our students so much, even in those brief presentations um, but then towards the end of the course, uh, they really sort of, you know, they've, they've come to a place now where they've reviewed and learned so much terminology at that point. They're, they've had opportunities to practice their skills. So now they give a more formal presentation, usually like a 15 minute PowerPoint presentation on, uh, usually a disease process, um, or some other, um, you know, health disparities related topic uh, that impacts the Latinx community. So that's another, I think, really important opportunity where our students learn and ultimately teach all of us about some of the different cultural and social aspects that um, impact health and that are particularly relevant to the Latinx community. Um, other ways that it's sort of like here and there I think infuse culture. I mean, I certainly remind our students that, you know, I'm teaching you this word for this um, particular, maybe especially if it's food, um, you know, that this might be a word for, you know, this fruit, for example, but I can tell you that there might be 10 other terms in different countries. So just to remind people that the Latinx culture is a very diverse culture and it's a diverse language. There are different words in different countries for different things. So so that it, it's not a monolithic language and that there's a lot of variability and to just sort of be flexible and, and prepared and open and curious about learning about that. Um, I actually often learn, again, from our own students who themselves have a background in different countries and I get to, we get to compare uh, what we grew up learning, uh, how to say, you know, pear, for example, or so something, something like that. Oh, that's great. What lessons do you think that teachers of other topics, other disciplines can learn 
from like the strategies and the approaches you take to language teaching? Um, I think maybe one of them is that I really do try to make this a very um, interactive experience for the students. Uh, I don't, you know, it was always this way, even before COVID, but I, I felt like it was so much more important even after in a pandemic and trying to teach this remotely that it had to be engaging. It had to keep them, you know, keep their attention and, and keep them thinking and, and basically in action together. So, um, you know, it's really trying to minimize the amount of time that I'm just presenting information to them and amplifying the time that they get to practice uh, speaking, that they get to practice interviewing each other. So we'll do breakout rooms. And even before when we were in person, I would basically do small, you know, pairing up in the room and they would uh, take turns speaking and interviewing each other, playing, doing some role playing and basically simulating, immersing themselves in that experience. Um, and I think that sort of active learning is uh, just a really, really great way to keep your students um, having fun. And I think when they're having fun, they learn more and, and probably appreciate the experience that much more. And then again, they're, they're very much a part of the education process when they're presenting for us and, and we all learn from each other. So I think it um, maybe just keeping things very, very interactive and, and really uh, providing a lot of opportunities for the students to be teachers themselves in, in the process, I think is, is a pretty neat thing. The other active, I forgot to mention, another sort of interactive learning tool has been working with standardized patients. Um, which I originally incorporated solely as an assessment tool at the end of their program. And it was a way for me to see how, comfort, how comfortable they were interacting with the standardized patients, um, if they were getting hung up in any way uh, with any vocabulary. And they also got that very helpful feedback that our standardized patients are always so great at giving. Um, it was also, again, a nice additional practice session for them because they were they had to do that in English too. So it was like another opportunity for them to get acclimated to the whole format of being videotaped while you're interviewing a standardized patient, which is always, you know, makes everybody self-conscious. So I, I think that they always do a great job. But because I could tell the students really valued that standardized patient experience, and it really was a great learning opportunity for them, I decided that I wanted to use it really kind of for both as a teaching tool and, and as an assessment tool. Um, and even what I did this year was I did one actually at the beginning of the course and then we'll repeat it at the end. So it even also maybe both for me and for the students ends up being a, a nice basis of comparison and they can kind of see how far they've come at the end of the program. Absolutely. Oh, there's such good, uh, such good points here. That idea that um, that assessments are also teaching and learning tools in and of themselves is such a valuable insight as as a faculty member because so often it's easy to think about this is how we get the score that goes in the grade book that demonstrates competency, but but that experience of interacting with a standardized patient or practicing another kind of assessment, um, you know, really becomes a mechanism for learning, and that's that's so important. And, uh, and your comments about active learning really resonate with me because I, I mentioned my teaching background is in Spanish. I taught college level Spanish in the, the early, early levels, the beginning and intermediate. 
And then I very much got interested in teaching as a field and teaching in higher ed and, and morphed into the role I have now. But then learning about active learning as a concept, for me as a former language teacher, my thought was, well, how could you do anything else, <laughs> right? <laughs> if I stand up in front of the class and speak Spanish at them all day, maybe their listening comprehension goes up a little bit, but but all those other things that are so important in a language, you know, the 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 oral, the the um, written, all the all these things that they need practice with. Um, so so for me, it, it was like a a boot camp in active learning strategies because that's just what you have to do. So you just so now, have to, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like whenever we talk about language, people always say, if you don't use it, you lose it, right? But it's so funny because, like, that's everything. Uh, yeah. <laughs> if you don't apply the things that you're doing, you'll you'll forget them. So, Absolutely. And yeah. I think also, you know, what I what I remember most and probably most fondly about my teaching experience in language is the opportunity to play um, and to to have a little bit of a lighter uh, a lighter tone than maybe what they had in other courses that they were taking at the same time and that that we could get away with some playful things because they were reinforcing grammar concepts or, or vocabulary. So, for example, I would I would always take uh, cartoons and I'm dating myself, but I would have them on the overhead projector as they walked into the classroom. And so they could just come in and see like a little Mafalda from Argentina, you know, oh, every <laughs> uh, and, and it, maybe it connected to what we were doing or maybe it didn't. But it was just a nice way to kind of set the tone to kind of create that that space recognition of like, okay, now we're morphing into whatever you were doing before. Now we're morphing into Spanish time and let's, you know, let's have a little fun. And it, um, you know, there's certainly tricks you can do uh, in other disciplines, but I felt like it, it gave me a little freedom to try some of yes. those things um, because I knew at the end it was also reinforcing what our objectives Absolutely. were. Actually, you reminded me of um, something that I did it sort of overlaps with, you know, other ways that I try to infuse culture throughout the course. Like sometimes I just, as we're kind of waiting for everybody to sign on into the Zoom meeting, and I'll have to think about how I'll, it's actually not that hard. I, I did do this in person sometimes too. Basically, I'll like just be playing music yes. in the background. So maybe I'm playing salsa, maybe I'm playing merengue or bachata or something like that. And, and I'll do that on Zoom. I'll even share a video sometimes. And sometimes it's pretty neat because you can see it might show, uh, you know, like the last one we saw shows you know, Havana, Cuba, and you just oh, like yeah. see as they're other playing beautiful salsa music. And, um, you know, and then I'll ask them questions, you know, like who recognizes, does anybody know what rhythm that is or what kind of music that is? And could, did you recognize what city that was? Um, so that's kind of fun. But one other thing I did um, was I split up the group into two halves and then I, I showed, and this was easier to do actually in breakout rooms than it is in person. I basically had to trust the one half of the room to just cover their eyes. <laughs> but basically, I would show them a, a, a painting. Um, one painting uh, was um, a Frida Kahlo painting. Uh, and then another one was a painting from Botero, who's a Colombian um, artist. Uh, so they each got, you know, a minute or so to, to look at, observe, uh, and sort of absorb it. And then they, and then I paired them up across the two groups and they had to, in Spanish, describe what did the painting look like so that the other person could envision it. And then I showed them both paintings and then there, it was just sort of fun to see their reactions like, oh yeah, okay, now I see what you're telling me. And, and again, it's sort of playing, right? It's fun. There's, you're not going to get graded on how you described it, but it was sort of a great way, I think, to just get people loose and, and, get them warmed up, so to speak, in speaking Spanish. And in the process, um, many of them learned about these two very 
well-renowned artists, uh, yeah. you know, Latinx culture. And then this other layer of, of, of the culture. And then also another thing that has been fascinating me lately since I've been at UMB is this idea of using the humanities to reinforce medical education. And there's so much literature that that demonstrates a connection between exposing medical students to art and the process of observing art and an increase in their medical observational skills. So you you were hitting the trifecta with that because you have the <laughs> playfulness, the language, and then also, you know, kind of sharpening the eye to, uh, you know, which is a transferable, you know, outcome to actually working with patients and seeing things. It's just so fascinating. I just, I know, it's trying trying to keep it fun. And I actually feel like I can't take all the credit for that idea because i remember you said you, you said something about humanistic uh i can't remember exactly what you said but um there is a, another elective called the humanism symposium in the medical school and um a couple years ago i remember one of my students who was doing both of those told me about one of their like their field trip activities was to go to an art museum and to you know, look at look at different paintings and then describe them to each other. And I was like, oh, we should, we could easily could and should do that in medical Spanish. So um, yeah, so it, it translated very nicely into the yeah. course. Yeah, and so much, you know, I, I, I just wanna, to call attention a little bit to to the hesitancy you have, oh, this wasn't my idea, or da da da. I think that so much about what we know about teaching is shared and it's communal, yeah. and and it needs to be. And it's it's tricky because of the the nature of the way that we teach is, is kind of in our boxes, in our classrooms, or on our zooms privately. And I think one of the best things we could do for education would be to to open up those conversations the way that we're doing right now, and to to share what's worked for us and what hasn't, and and to not be nervous to say, I borrowed this great idea and it's working great, or I borrowed this great idea and I tweaked it and made it my own. I, I you know I just think that that is that is how the field advances. Um, so yes. I just I want everyone to feel very comfortable, you know, taking and borrowing and sharing, and you know that's that's how the world goes. Absolutely. No, thank you for that. I, I, I definitely appreciate that. And right. I mean, I think part of that too required on my part some, some openness and flexibility to be like, Oh, could I, could, how could I add this into my course? This is not a change. It's an addition. It's, you know, I'm some, I'm enhancing my course in this way. And similarly, um, it's been awesome to invite some of our other faculty in the School of Medicine that I know speak Spanish and are specialists in various areas to be guest speakers and guest presenters um, in the in the course. So, for example, uh, uh, Camilo Gutierrez in the Department of Neurology presents to them how to take a great neuro history and and, and perform the neurophysical exam. Um, Madeline Dick Biascoitea has presented on the uh, gynecological exam and taking a good OB history and, and, and GYN history. So, you know, I remember in the beginning being a little sort of nervous, like, okay, are they going to get the format and is it going to be, how's this is going to go? Um, and it's been so wonderful that I've just been every year inviting more people. And, and I think it really is wonderful for the students too. It keeps it very dynamic for them. A, they're meeting a lot of faculty rather than just me, and they get to see, oh, there was a lot of Spanish-speaking faculty at the medical school. They're also hearing different accents because we're all from different countries. So that's another, uh, as you're saying, sort of like fine-tuning their ear and, and really helping them get comfortable with different accents. Um, and obviously, 
I'm a gastroenterologist, so you know, if I'm teaching the neuro exam, I'm going to do I'm going to do a reasonably decent job, but a neurologist is going to do a better job. Let's be honest; it's this is their specialty. So I really feel like I'm giving my students um, sort of the cream of the crop, if you will, within that um, field. And we can sometimes together the week after we'll reinforce some of those concepts. Just just us um, that you know about it's worked out to be about um, maybe four or five guest faculty. Uh, are sprinkled out throughout the the year for them, and I think that that's been it's it's been fun, and and I think it's also really enhanced the the whole program. That's so great. That's so it is it is a, a vulnerable feeling to invite people into your classroom and to and and I think that has has a lot to do with how we viewed expertise in the past. Um, and I think there's there's such power in saying you know I could do this, but my colleague can do it better, and I think. What's so exciting to me is that you're modeling that team-based mindset for these future healthcare providers to say, you know what, it's okay yeah. if you're not, you know, you don't have the the most expertise in this, but you're going to call in a colleague for a referral, and that's fine. Or you're going to bring in somebody to, you know, to help, and uh, it's all toward the greater good, which in your case is this learning experience. But it's also modeling the, you know, how we could do this for the greater good of a of patient care. Or absolutely. So I think that's just so great. So is there anything on the horizon that you've seen or experienced, um, you know, as you've developed this course or as you've, uh, with your experience in the medical school, is there anything on the horizon that you think could really move the needle, uh, either in the teaching of medical Spanish or in the teaching of, of medicine in general? So I definitely think that for the teaching of medical Spanish, I guess maybe I'll start first like on a national level and then locally at our institution, um, I'm really grateful and fortunate. I get to serve on a national um, committee or task force for medical Spanish, actually, because one thing that we've all learned um, just meeting each other at different conferences, and then certainly we've we've certainly confirmed it now being on the committee is that you know if if there are a hundred different medical Spanish uh, institutions rather that are teaching medical Spanish that. The program is different at every institution. Um, there really isn't any standardization about what makes a good medical Spanish course and um, what should be, for example, recognized for credit or just in general. I think again, for two for two reasons. One is making sure that the student is really getting the best high quality experience, but also you know, what are the expectations for what students can do that have completed that course and how does that ultimately impact patient care? So um, is there an expectation that a student that's finished medical Spanish, are they now going in the hospital and basically you don't need to call the interpreter because, hey, we have, you know, this student on the team who just came out of medical Spanish. So really kind of standardizing, that's the work that this committee is working on is establishing what are sort of the at least the the minimum criteria that should be met by a medical spanish program that um that it could be sort of recognized as a for credit medical spanish program what are best practices i think is probably the right way to say what we're trying to establish in terms of both delivering content integrating the uh cultural humility and agility elements into the course and then also what are the best ways to assess both the students and the program as you're evolving and, and going forth. So um, so I'm excited about that. I think that it's going to be 
um, I think it is going to move the needle in terms of um, also empowering other institutions that currently don't have a medical Spanish program to give them some really concrete tools and strategies to to start one. Because I think a lot of places have interest, um, have a patient population that you know that that students potentially could work with. Um, but um, kind of don't really even have the bandwidth or the wherewithal to where to begin with something like that. So we're putting together sort of like a toolkit for for um, potential starting up new medical Spanish programs across the country or really upgrading existing programs. Um, and then for us, I mean, I think I think I'm I feel pretty I feel pretty fortunate, especially in kind of hearing all the variability of what. Um, Span medical Spanish programs look like across the country that I think our students do have a very well structured um, full experience um, in our medical Spanish course at the School of Medicine. Um, the thing that the piece that I, I want to jump to next is that very much that what happens after the course? Um, how do our students get recognized um, as someone who can contribute to patient care in the hospital, working with our growing Latinx population in Baltimore, but also not be put in a position that they should not be in because they are not interpreters per se. Um, and there are legal aspects and implications um, with respect to that. So definitely that's also part of actually my preparation and education during the medical Spanish program is for our students to know what are their limits and, and where to say, you know, this is, this is where I can contribute. This is where, um, you know, th this is my, my, uh, wheelhouse. And then outside of that, um, you know, to, to, if, if the team doesn't recognize this, the medical team or surgical team, then as the, the person that they're looking to, to provide language to, to be able to say, this is the point at which we need to actually call in a medical interpreter here. Um, so to to have that insight as well. But um, I would like to be able to, and I guess this requires funding, which is part of the reason why there's been some, some pause. But moving forward, what I'd love to be able to do is to have the students that complete the program um, also participate in sort of a national assessment tool. And I know that um, again, because of the lack of standardization, there isn't really one tool or, or test that is recognized um, just sort of uniformly across the country. But there are a few examples that are fairly well known, and it would be, I think, pretty neat to have our students be able to complete that just to get that additional validation and say, you know, yes, I, I excelled and I did well uh, in my medical Spanish class and I passed for this national test. And so, and then maybe have like a badge or something that says you hablo español or something in the hospital as they're rotating through so that um, patients can also recognize um, our students uh, potentially as someone that they could ask ask a quick question, you know, how do I, how do I get to the breast imaging center, you know, right, or something right. like that. So yeah. they can really be um, identified and, and recognized as having that skill set. It almost sounds as though you're describing a competency-based model in the language itself. And it, that, you know, could, could possibly even track, uh, you know, in a similar way to the way we recognize the different phases of medical education. You know, you're, you're a resident now, and that comes with with this uh, level of expectation as opposed to, you know, to the time, you know, right before that. 
Absolutely. I mean, I do think that as the, our students are applying for residency, um, even without that test, I mean, I do think being able to say that they completed a medical Spanish program that was a, a formal four credit elective in their medical as part of their medical school training is just like a tremendously valuable skill that makes them that much more competitive and more, I think, um, useful on their yeah. on their teams when they rotate as residents in the hospital. Yeah. And and it, it must be so rewarding to know that, you know, because of a program you envisioned in your own medical student days, you know, there are people now in hospitals who can help direct patients to the breast imaging center or who can answer questions about their diagnosis or their health care. I mean, the impact that you've had, it must make you feel great. Oh, it, it does. I think actually I um, had something recently happen that has been extremely rewarding where many things have come together. And that is because at UMB, UMB has started, uh, well, UMB has been vaccinating uh, people for COVID-19 for many months now, but just for a couple of weeks now um, at the student at the campus center, UMB has also instituted on Saturdays a clinic uh, collaborating, a vaccination clinic collaborating with Casa de Maryland and the Esperanza Center. So really targeting and amplifying access to Latinx communities in Baltimore to come get vaccinated. And as they were setting up, because somebody knew that I teach medical Spanish at UMB, they called me and they were like, we think we're going to need some help. <laughs> They're like, nobody speaks Spanish there. And well, we just thought that and I was like, you know what? This is a great opportunity for the medical students. I mean, this I would absolutely recognize this as a wonderful service learning opportunity for our students. Um, and it's just one of those beautiful things. I've, I've been to the clinic um, two Saturdays now. I, I actually, I want to try to go basically every Saturday that I can. Um, it's so rewarding and wonderful to see my students there working with the patients, helping them navigate through the campus center, um, helping them get their questions um, asked, as well as just making sure that they're comfortable and and it, it, and just seeing the the relief um, and smile on the face of the patients as any of us walks up to them and starts speaking to them in Spanish. Yeah. Um, we've gotten awesome feedback to from Casa and from the Esperanza Center, just saying that the patients said that they felt very welcome, they felt very comfortable. And um, that's just been like, just fills my heart. That has just been tremendously rewarding that, you know, patients and students are all benefiting from this. That's fantastic. Gosh, Dr. Quesada, this has been such a fantastic conversation. We cannot thank you enough for your time. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. Thank you for joining us today on Moving the Needle. Visit us at umaryland.edu slash fctl to hear additional episodes, leave us feedback, or suggest future topics. We'd love to hear from you.